Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. Today we are talking about housing again. We've had quite a few housing episodes in the last six months or so because it is the top or one of the top issues facing New Yorkers in New York City. Of course, we've gotten a lot of interesting perspectives here on the show. You can find those various episodes at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts with the Gotham Gazette website. But today we're taking a closer look at what's happening around rent stabilized apartments in New York City and the Rent Guidelines Board. We're speaking here on Tuesday, June 14th, and it's very important to note the date because things are moving quickly here. One week from today, on June 21st, 2022, the New York City Rent Guidelines Board will take a final vote on the rent increases for rent-stabilized apartments with rates for one-year lease renewals and two-year lease renewals. And so that vote is being heavily watched. People are, of course, giving testimony at a variety of hearings. You can also submit testimony online. There are almost 2.2 million renter households overall in the city, and about half of them, roughly 1 million renter households, are rent-stabilized, meaning under the purview of the New York City Rent Guidelines Board. My guest today is going to share the perspective of many building owners and managers. Jay Martin is the executive director of CHIP, the Community Housing Improvement Program, an association founded in 1966 that is now of about 4,000 owners and managers of over 400,000 rent-stabilized rental properties throughout the five boroughs of New York City. CHIP, Per its website, looks to empower property owners to provide quality, affordable housing and build communities. And it advocates in Albany, City Hall, court and the media uh, for rational, business friendly policies and regulations, it says. The 2021 New York City Housing and Vacancy Survey initial findings report that was released by the city last month in May of 2022 uh, by the city's housing department found that there were 1,006,000 rent-stabilized units citywide, and among the rent-stabilized units, the median monthly rent was $1,400. Now, the composition of uh, household uh, leaders in rent-stabilized households generally reflects the overall renter population in the city, according to the city's housing department. Within this segment of rent-stabilized housing, 34% are headed by Hispanic New Yorkers, 32% of rent-stabilized households are headed by white New Yorkers, 22% headed by Black New Yorkers, and 11% headed by Asian New Yorkers. The Rent Guidelines Board is looking at increases to be within the margin of 2 to 4% for one-year leases and 4 to 6% for two-year leases. That would be effective October 1st of this year, coming up in a few months. These are the highest proposed increases in quite a few years. Uh, there's been a lot of debate over the course, really, of the de Blasio administration, especially about how the Rent Guidelines Board made its decisions and how much uh, the mayor who appoints the members of the Rent Guidelines Board with certain uh, prerequisites to those appointees was seeking to influence the decisions of the Rent Guidelines Board. And of course, there are many tenant perspectives and there are many perspectives from the building owners and managers and elected officials and so forth. 
The Rent Guidelines Board has held uh, a couple of recent hearings on June 6th and June 8th, is hosting hearings this week that we're speaking, had one yesterday on June 13th. There's one coming up uh, for what is right now as we're recording this tomorrow on June 15th. Uh, Those are available to either uh, testify or to watch streaming. And the vote is coming up, as I said, next week on June 21st. All right. So my conversation with Jay Martin of Chip in just one second. First, very quickly, if you've missed any of our recent reporting at Gotham Gazette, find it at GothamGazette.com. We've recently been covering the primaries that are fast approaching here in June for the statewide offices and state assembly. There have been recent debates in the gubernatorial primaries on the Democratic side and the Republican side. We have recaps of both of those and much more at GothamGazette.com. Here on the show on Max Politics, we've had some great recent guests. Last week on the show was, uh, we're calling it Retirement Week. I had two great guests who are leaving the legislature after uh, pretty long runs there, one of moderate length and one of a very long tenure in the legislature. Last week, I was joined by State Senator Diane Savino of Staten Island in Brooklyn, who is leaving the state Senate after 18 very interesting years there. She came on the show to share a whole bunch of perspective on her tenure and city and state politics. And I was also joined by Assemblymember Dick Gottfried of Manhattan, who is finishing 52 years in the state assembly and retiring at the end of this year. Uh, I've had a bunch of other great guests, including uh, City Councilmember Carlina Rivera, who's now running for Congress in the new 10th district, State Senator Andrew Gennardis, and a bunch of others so as I said, you can find any, all of those and others at Max Politics wherever you get your podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette site. All right, Jay Martin, Executive Director of CHIP, the Community Housing Improvement Program, an association founded in 1966 that is now of about 4,000 owners and managers of over 400,000 rent-stabilized rental properties across New York City. How are you? Thank you for being here. Um, thank you, Ben. Pleasure to be with you. So let's get big picture here. Uh, Your uh, association and its members think that the increased proposals, the 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 what the rent guidelines board is considering, are are actually too low as is. What's the case for rent increases on these one million rent stabilized apartments that either? are at the top of the ranges the Rent Guidelines Board is considering or even above. Make uh, make the sort of top line case as to why the members of your association need these uh, rent increases from their tenants. Yep, well, it's, it's actually twofold. Uh, you, you addressed it a, a little bit there for the last four to six years, but really the last eight years in the de Blasio administration, uh, the Rent Guidelines Board has, spe- has specifically looked at the data of rent stabilized properties. And they have a very, they have a tough charter that they have to follow. They have to look at the income and expense of properties, and they have to balance that with the affordability of the rent-stabilized housing stock. And they have to kind of strike a balance between not pricing out tenants, obviously, but also making sure that properties are able to be properly maintained, uh, property taxes, which make up 40% of the average, that uh, statement you made about $1,400 being the average, 40% of that $1,400 goes right back to the city in the form of property taxes. So. That balance and striking that balance is something that RGB has to do. And for the last eight years, the balance has been favored significantly in the side of the tenants. Now, we can argue, uh, and I think that's a separate conversation, whether or not that's been good or bad for housing um, or tenants. But today's reality 
is that CPI as of this month is 8.6%. Uh, the fuel costs have quadrupled. Uh, insurance rates in parts of the Bronx and Brooklyn have doubled. Uh, we're looking at a water rate hike from the city. Um, all the expenses and the costs to run housing in the city of New York have precipitously gone up um, for property owners. And part of the Rent Guidelines Board uh, Charter, again, is to look at those numbers and determine how much of an increase can, can be one allowed, can be borne by the renters, and can be uh, approved to cover those operating costs. So we're basing our our ask on those numbers. And those numbers suggest that the higher a range of the preliminary uh, uh, the numbers that had come out before, which was closer to 9%, would have covered the increase in operating costs. Now, the preliminary range that they've come back with is about half of that. So when you do the math on a $1,400 average one-bedroom apartment uh, at a 4% rent increase, um, which is uh, arguably uh, affordable for most rent-stabilized tenants. Again, free market units are seeing 20, 30, 40% rent increases. This rent-stabilized stock is still significantly more affordable than free market. So when you look at what a 4% rent increase would be, um, it works out to about $60 a month. When you look at the expense side, uh, it's about $73 in increased expenses if you add up the uh, insurance costs, the, the electrical, the uh, fuel costs, the water rate increase, the property tax reassessments that were done the last year, the, uh, the Blasio administration. So a property owner is actually losing money on just a 4% rent increase. Now, I don't expect renters. I'm a renter myself. I don't like to pay more rent. Nobody likes to pay more money. But I do expect the guidelines board and their charter to understand that they have a duty to look at the expenses and try and balance uh, what is a reasonable proportional rent adjustment based off those uh, rapidly increasing expenses on rent stabilized properties. Because again, since the 2019 rent laws, property owners don't have the privilege of just increasing their rent to cover operating costs like a free market unit would. So get at a little bit of the, there's some real tension there, right? That in many cases, um, you know, tenants in rent stabilized apartments, um, they have their own, you know, fixed incomes and they, they, you know, there's many who've been in units for a very long time. Um, the, there's a challenge in, in the dramatic rent increases that you note that we're seeing, you know, in the private uh, free market, uh, there's some real challenges there to having it be an affordable city. Part of the reason there's rent stabilized apartments making up roughly half of, of the total uh, rental unit population in the city. Um, how, how, what's your perspective on how this sort of um, balance got so out of whack here? Is this because in the, in the de Blasio years, there was just such a pressure from the mayor because he was focused on affordability and equity, um, you know, on sort of a artificial driving down with, with rent freezes and, and the, the smaller increases um, that now the, there's such an enormous challenge when you combine that plus um, some of these, you know, immense changes in the, in the, in costs that everybody's seeing across the board. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, there's, there's some real, real challenges that have come together uh, at once. Sir. 
Sure. So, so it's a it's a confluence of a lot of things. As much as I'm sure everyone in the industry would like to blame Bill De Blasio for all mm-hmm. of our problems, I don't <laughs> think we could significantly blame him uh, for all, everything. It goes way back, right? The fact that you know you touched on it, and I'm a believer in basic economics and and human nature uh, as well. Um, there was a lot of talk about New York being written off. Well, that's not happening. People are moving back into the city in droves. Um, we have bidding wars happening on, on free market units. Um, people are paying up front huge fees just for the ability to get into uh, the market. Um, so there's, there is a huge influx of people with disposable income driving up the costs on free market units. Uh, then you have a million units of housing locked into a rent stabilization system that in some cases, and we would argue to the tune of a couple hundred thousand units are locked below what their operating income is. So it, again, getting back to basic economics, if you suppress the income uh, for a million units of housing, the and, and talking about human nature, and the need to cover operating expenses in these buildings, that would mean that the rent stabilization system, and again, this isn't blame, this is basic math, would be a contributing factor to the reason why some of the, the free market rents are we're seeing the proportional massive increases. When you dump a huge uh, population of new renters into a saturated housing market that isn't building enough housing that we need, um, I think Everyone on both sides of the discussion, whether you're tenant advocate, public advocate, uh, property owner advocate, would agree we're not building enough housing. So and you dump a ton of new renters into a population where there's just not enough housing. And half of that housing is either not moving. You have folks, like you said, that are in that population for 20, 30 years on the time. Then you have to get creative. And the government for too long, rent stabilization is not subsidized. It is subsidized by other renters and other property owners. The affordability is provided by someone else paying a little bit more rent um, to compensate for the difference in the lower rent uh, in the market. So the the government needs to come in and do a better role and to do a better uh, job, frankly, of subsidizing those renters you talked about who can't keep up with the increased uh, operating cost increases that are necessary for the Rent Guidelines Board to approve in the rent-stabilized housing stock. We need to be born, building more housings to decrease the pressure on the free market units. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a definite argument to be made for reforming the property tax system, because, again, the property tax uh, uh, system becomes a de facto tax on renters because property tax is a huge component of what increases the rent on uh, rent rent uh, checks. So when rent uh, property taxes go up on a building, it increases the rent. When it's a stabilized building and the rent can't be increased because it's guided by the Rent Guidelines Board, where does that money come from? It comes from free market units. So if there are not enough free market units, then you have that discrepancy where those rents continue to go up and up and up with no end in sight. We need to be building more housing. We need to be reducing the operating costs uh, on the existing housing we have. And the government has got to pay for affordability at some point and some component. We collectively, as taxpayers, as elected officials, have to do a better job of providing a subsidy to those renters who can't. There's a scree benefit. There's a DREE benefit for seniors and disability. There should be a, a, a broader, it's a bill that's been bouncing around Albany for decades, a renter assistance, which where a property tax owner will get a subsidy on their property taxes. It'll lock the tenant's rent at a certain rate by 
defraying the cost of the property tax for the renter or for the property owner so that they can uh, keep the rent at a reasonable rate. These are common sense proposals that have no traction because it's much easier just to talk to a property owner for when the rent check goes up and say, you're being greedy. There was some momentum behind this state legislation, but it did not get over the finish line before the the budget was due, which was when it really would have needed to happen, considering there's a fiscal component there. Um, but New York City has a variety of rental voucher programs. Is um, is it that from your perspective, it's just nowhere, nowhere near enough? Uh, well, it's, too, it's twofold, you know, and, and it, it, the, the main problem preliminarily with the city FEPS, primarily with the city FEPS program, uh, which is the, I think what you refer to, the Section 8 program works fairly well. Most of the owners that we work with, uh, the clients that we work to place out of homeless shelters into our rent-stabilized housing stock would agree the Section 8 vouchers are far more preferential than the city FEPS vouchers. The FEPS vouchers themselves, and we're, we were uh, very excited to see some of the proposals this morning from the Adams administration on this reform to the FEPS uh, program, uh, delaying some of the, uh, or uh, speeding up some of the uh, delays that we've seen in the approval process. Uh, right now, what happens is a city FEPS client sitting in a homeless shelter will come to one of our owners. Two things will happen. One, we have to eliminate discrimination in the housing market. There's no denying that some property owners see this system as a, I would argue they do not discriminate against the voucher holder, but the system itself. They see that this voucher does not work. It does not consistently pay. They lose uh, usually months of rent waiting for the application to go through. Um, so that has to be eliminated first and foremost. And then we need to work with uh, the agency that approves uh, the voucher, in this case, uh, Human Resort, Human uh, Rights Administration in the city. And they have to have more staff to actually approve these applications. There's a four to five month waiting period. This person is waiting in a homeless shelter. While it, even when you have a property owner that wants to accept this voucher, they have a, a, a unit of housing sitting there vacant. They're losing money the entire time. Months are going by. They could be renting out that apartment. They're waiting for the voucher to be approved. Uh, various approval processes go on. And then uh, as recent reporting, and I think even your outlet uh, published this as well, only about 30% of those vouchers ended up getting approved. So 70% of the people who have gone through this process for months, when they've had an owner who's willing to take the voucher, end up going right back into the homeless uh, system. It's not acceptable. It isn't a proper way to get people out of the housing system, uh, homeless shelter system into a permanent housing system. We want to make sure that it works. We, we're hopeful that the administration will actually work to fix it. Is your organization, Chip, doing anything proactively around source of income discrimination in terms of making sure member uh, building owners and property managers um, you know, are, are, are abiding by the, the law, even if they have these issues with the system that you're also trying to advocate get changed? Um, are you do, have you done anything to try to make sure that you are rooting this, this issue out? Yeah, so we, um, uh, I, you know, I've been... Uh, three, the last three years I've been with CHIP, we've done, we do uh, a yearly seminar uh, on best practices and accepting vouchers. Uh, we've also recently started working with some brokerage firms um, and having them speak to some of our owners and doing webinars in this age of, uh, of Zoom calls uh, on uh, the best way to 
both advertised to brokerage firms that you're willing to accept vouchers uh, or that you're actively looking for voucher holders to place in certain apartments uh, and best practices. Uh, We have a great relationship with a a brokerage firm in Upper Manhattan where, um, just as an example, she had 35 voucher holders um, that she was working on over six months. Um, Only three of them ended up getting the vouchers approved. And that's really, uh, this was about two years ago. That's really what brought this to life for us and our organization that um, we really feel that this is a discrimination against the system itself. Of course, I, I'm, I'm aware that there may be property owners who are looking at a, at a rent, a consistent rent check and denying it. Um, but when you think about it on its principle, a voucher is a consistent rent check. Um, and when we speak to property owners in that context um, uh, and explain to them, this is working. You're providing housing. Not only are you doing a good service, but it's it's a reliable form of rental income. Once the voucher system is up and approved and, and funding, they see that in the Section 8. They don't believe it in city FEPs. And if we fix city FEPs, they'll believe it. They'll accept it more often. And we can get it rolling for people in, in homeless shelters. The um the challenges that that your members um, and others who own and run uh, buildings with rent rent stabilized units that you know you're discussing these gaps between um, the costs of of operating and maintaining those buildings and units versus the income that's coming in given uh, the you know the rent stabilized rents. Um, how how much of an issue from your members are you seeing in terms of uh, people struggling to make their mortgage payments? You know, there's this debate that's often going on that I know you participate in sometimes around, you know, questions around how many how many of these building owners are sort of mom and pop, you know, building owners who just, you know, they own one or two buildings, um, you know, and they are they're barely getting by versus, you know, the 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 bigger companies and uh, and others who, you know, have big real estate portfolios. And as you said, the you know, some of the market rate units are are subsidizing the rent stabilized units. Um, it doesn't seem that I've seen, you know, a lot from your organization or others about, you know, owners that are on the verge of foreclosure or really struggling. What what does that picture look like? Yeah, so um, it, it's both a blessing and a curse. I think where it's hidden in is the sales, um, where what we see is these smaller owners more often than not, before they foreclose, they sell and they sell at a discount. Uh, we saw this in mass after the 2019 rent laws. Um, the rent stabilization housing stock, um, this is not landlord talking points. This is a fact. Uh, the property values of rent sta- 100% rent stabilized housing stock dropped in half. Um, and that can be discussed and attributed to a number of reasons. One is obviously the ability to deregulate a rent stabilized unit of housing into a free market uh, unit. Um, so that projected future income on that unit was immediately. Uh, eliminated. So it's it's then tied directly to whatever the rent guidelines for increase could be. Now, again, not saying that's good or bad for housing, saying that's a fact. So when you look at that, uh, we had property owners who then said, okay, the I invested X amount of millions of dollars in this building. I either borrowed it or I had co-investors in this. I The value, I'm over leveraged to the tune of half the value of this building. I either need to sell to a large corporate owner like Blackstone or, or someone else, a hedge fund, perhaps. We've also seen that from other states. Or 
I can try and figure out how to make the numbers work. Some are still trying to make the numbers work. Some have been able to subside on short-term bridge loans from other investors. But the, the one benefit to New York is that it's still New York and people will still want to live here. The value of housing will always be there. So you can always borrow against the value of the property and the footprint of the building itself. You will get you will get hit with massive interest rates, especially now that they've doubled. Um, but it will be difficult um, in many cases uh, to sustain those payments in the long term if you're not increasing the rent. And that's why we're, you know, uh, cautious and caution and cautioning lawmakers that we have to keep these uh, rents on a very uh, mild trajectory north because if there has to be extreme corrections, that's when you get into the issues of. Uh, default on mortgage payments. Um, there was a benefit to a lot of these banks deferring uh, mortgage payments during the pandemic that has all fallen by the wayside, just as many property, uh, single family homeowners saw. So uh, a lot of the smaller owners have sold to larger corporate entities uh, before they mm-hmm. go bankrupt. That's mm-hmm. usually the case. The um the housing survey says that there's roughly 40, more than 42,000 vacant rent stabilized units. Um, you and Chip had been pointing out an issue around vacant rent stabilized units, just like you were there, um, you know, pointing to the changes to the state law that were passed in 2019 um, as, as basically the, you know, the reason why these uh, tens of thousands of units are sitting vacant. What's what's the argument there, and how does that get fixed at this point? Yeah, I mean it's it's very simple. Um, the 2019 rent law regulates vacant units of housing. It basically says if this apartment is affordable, whether or not somebody lives in it or not, the property owner does not have the ability to change the rent. So if somebody has lived in a unit of housing for 20 or 30 years, that unit uh, more often than not needs massive amounts of investment. We, we see lead in these apartments because they've been grandfathered in since the new rent, the new lead laws, especially in the last uh, 18 months, the, the law uh, measurement went from 0.10 down to 0.05. So it was cut in half. So these are apartments that more often than not need to be completely gutted, lead abated. Uh, we're not just talking putting in new appliances. We're talking gut renovated, new wiring, 30, 40 years old. They need significant investment. So a property owner looks at that vacant unit of housing more often than not, because remember, this isn't a subsidy. These rents are just kept from going up. There is no uh, financial incentive provided. It's made up somewhere else in the building portfolio. So if a rent, let's say you said the average was $1,400, that's what the the housing vacancy survey says. So let's say a rent is $700. The difference between that and how much, let's say it's $100,000 on average to renovate an apartment. What an owner would be able to collect on the current system in 2019 is an $83 a month rent increase. That's an IAI. It's, it allows for a one-time over 30 years, a $15,000 improvement. The discrepancy between the $75,000 and the $15,000 is, is a amount of money that the owner would be losing over 30 years that they can't um, justify. They would lose less money keeping that unit vacant, not collecting $700 a month, keeping it vacant than they would spending $100,000 to renovate that unit of housing and renting it out at $700 a month, plus the $83 IAA they were allowed. That 
mathematical equation is what property owners are making that decision across the, the city. One way to fix that is allowing for a one-time um, vacancy reset of when a, a, a unit of housing comes off of a long-term tenancy, it's been there for a certain amount of time, allowing an owner to reset the rent to a uh, more reasonable, closer to market rate rent of housing. And then the, the unit would be completely rent stabilized going forward. It would still be governed by the rent guidelines board, but the owner would have an incentive to reinvest back in that property, make sure it was up to code, completely up to code, back on the market and available to be rented. We are regulating housing for no one when it is a vacant unit of housing. We're preserving affordability for no one because that unit of housing, once it becomes vacant, and we saw tons of these apartments become vacant when, God forbid, folks died from COVID or they moved out of the city out of rent-stabilized property. They were actually giving up rent-stabilized leases, which was unheard of during the pandemic. That's where we think many of these came from. So when you're seeing that and you have these units of housing that you can't do much with unless you invest a lot of money into them, um, the equation works out better for an owner to keep it vacant than it does to invest the money in and lose it over 30 years. The um new data on on these 42,000 uh, plus uh, apparently vacant rent stabilized units is, is fairly new right that you you were raising the alarm about this saying more than 20,000 um, pr- prior to that but last month in, in May of 2022 the city released this housing vacancy survey and that's where the the 42,860 number now comes from so this is relatively new data but are you hearing any discussion of what to do about this? I mean, you know, the the um, elected officials that you talk with, is there any discussion around how to address uh, this issue and get to some sort of compromise, some sort of, you know, uh, initiative, yeah. legislation, funding? Go ahead. Look, we need more housing. Yeah, we absolutely need more housing. We need to be putting more housing. We need to be incentivizing development of new housing and getting new housing back on the market. We need to be getting these uh, units that need proper renovation back on the market. So we've had positive conversations with a lot of lawmakers, some who simply say slap coats of paint on lead-filled lead walls um, and, and rent it back out. Um, there are a small minority of those folks who say that, but a majority of the ones we've had positive conversations with chairs in, in both the housing and the Senate, uh, we think a compromise can be reached Look, uh, more housing is better for property owners, uh, rentable housing, I should say. Rentable housing is better for property owners. It's certainly better for for tenants. Uh, It will still be drastically uh, more affordable than any free market unit put in. It will be, on average, by the way, more affordable than any 421A unit newly built or a hotel conversion newly built. and so we need to be we need to fix this and put them put them back on the market. Let, let me let me actually ask you a question on the on the forty two thousand eight sixty of the forty two thousand eight sixty uh, apparently vacant rent stabilized units. Of that, do you have an estimate of how many of those are in need of these very deep repairs? I mean, it can't be all of them, right? Uh, no, no, it's 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 hard. it's impossible to know. We were working mm-hmm. off of the twenty thousand number based off a survey, and we extrapolated the numbers based off of our our membership uh, numbers. Uh, Then the vacancy survey came out and it was double what we had estimated. Um, There is probably going to be owners who just invest the money and lose it over the long term to get those units in because they can't afford to keep the unit vacant. Um, They can do the math and and maybe they'll be able to get a bridge loan from a lender to uh, put the money in and somehow make the numbers work. Or they'll have an outside investor or they're going to renovate it and then sell sell the building. 
um, because they'll get the value up in the property itself and be able to charge more when they sell the building at the end of the day, um, making the argument that perhaps there will be a change to the rent law. I don't know. Um, some some Somebody smarter than me may be able to make the math work on the renovation costs. But for now, we know that there are at least... 20,000. Um, and again, may not be all 42,000, but there are tens of thousands of units of housing that need drastic renovations that need to be able to be reset. Mm-hmm. And you're in a realistic compromise on what to do about these. Say, say it again. What I mean, I think this is really important. I mean, if you have, let's just say it's half of those, even that's 20,000 plus units, uh, you know, in need of uh, sweeping repairs that don't seem to make the numbers work. Again, this is your perspective. Yeah. Take taking your argument here. I, I obviously sure. have not verified all that, but no. uh, but what does that what does that compromise look like for you in terms of the government action you would you would want? Yeah, allowing for a one time um, vacancy reset to closer to realistic rent. Uh, amount. If a department is locked in the rent stabilization system with a- as in a me as in maybe getting it up, getting them all up to the median or what does that what does that mean? Reason, you know, what does yeah, that mean? Yeah, I, I, we can. Yeah. Well, that's that's where legislation, you know, meets in the middle. So median yeah. um, or we can have a conversation, you know, what's median in uh, Long Island is or Long Island City rather is, mm-hmm. is much different than what's median in Manhattan. So uh, and by the way, op, uh, operating costs varies in the Bronx. Yeah. Insurance costs are much higher than they are in parts of Manhattan. Um, so that's something that will have to be figured out during the legislation. Mm-hmm. But but the ability to get the rent closer to where it'll actually produce um, enough income to cover the operating of the building and are uh, the unit. And we consider the renovation costs part of the operating. I'm speaking here with Jay Martin, the executive director of CHIP, the Community Housing Improvement Program, an association founded in 1966 of about 4,000 owners and managers of over 400,000 rent-stabilized rental properties in New York City. Uh, Jay, thanks for the time. A couple more questions before I let you go. Um, What is the current status of, of tenants and overdue rent and how much the members of your association are uh, filing eviction notices and where do things stand with the emergency rental assistance program and how is all that looking now as we speak here on June 14th, 2022? I mean, this is obviously uh, we're, you know, we're two plus years into the pandemic at this point. There was obviously the eviction moratorium that has now uh, abated. Um, where do things stand for you and your members on um, back rent of significant sums, the state funding and eviction uh, proceedings? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. Uh, it's been um, a very uh, arduous process, both getting the advocating for the amount of money to be approved. And then once the portal was up and running, that plethora of problems we had getting it running and getting tenants signed up and getting owners participating. Um, right now, I think the total amount all in is of close to $3 billion that's been set aside. There was $2.2 billion that came from the Fed, then another $850 million that came from the state legislature just this past budget cycle. Uh, the main issue has been that, first of all, that's going to cover, we think, about three-fourths of the total um, amount of statewide rent arrears. There's still going to be uh, one and a half to two billion dollars of rent arrears uh, still uh, unaccounted for, um, and the owners will never see that. 
Um, they're aware of that, but they'll never see that. Um, what they would like to do is work out uh, payment plans in some cases. This is, again, where a robust voucher program could have just easily come in right after ERAP and helped start um, paying for some of these. Again, it's only we're only talking about 8 to 10% of the total rental population of the city of New York. Um, mm. So it's a, it, it is a deep problem, but it's very acute. Um, and, and luckily, a lot of the ERAP funds were able to cover up some of that. There are still people who have significant arrears, though, that have not been helped by the program and likely will never be helped by the program. So what do we do with those people? Well, currently, eviction proceedings are being filed. But I can tell you, they are not going anywhere. There, there is an ERAP portal open right now. Uh, any tenant who gets an eviction proceeding filed against them, and it's important to point out that 90% of evictions in New York City before the pandemic never went to the case, never went as far as a martial action. In other words, the tenant may have had an eviction filed against them, which is its own hardship, but they were never actually removed from the housing. Eviction filings are a fiduciary duty of a property owner to file when somebody owes them money. If you stop paying your cable bill, if you stop paying your, your car payment, any your mortgage payment, whoever you owe that money to has to make a record and a note that you owe them that money for their own lenders, for their own mortgage holders, for their own insurance companies. So property owners are compelled to file eviction cases when people owe them 10 to 15, 20 or $30,000. So that's step one. Then we get into the housing court system. Right now, there are not enough uh, attorneys. Um, for whatever reason, the city council passed a mandate to provide uh, attorneys for um, low-income New Yorkers. They Either the funding wasn't there to hire enough or there aren't enough attorneys, which is the argument that they're making. So those cases are not proceeding. And by the way, property owners prefer to be working with attorneys on the other side. It's much harder for a tenant attorney, for a landlord attorney to work with a tenant who does not have an attorney. Payment plans are much more difficult to work out that way. It's much more difficult to get them signed up for one-shot deals from the city of New York so that they can get payments to stay in that housing. And again, that's why we've been able to keep 90% of people in their housing, even when they get an eviction filing filed against them. Uh, and, and the ultimate end goal is the keeping person in the house. It isn't to get them out because the costs to go to court, to re um, put the unit of housing back on, um, to, to republicize it. And again, this is rent stabilized. We don't have the ability just to increase the rent. So there's no real benefit to get an eviction because you're not gonna be able to increase the rent on the new tenant that comes in anyway. Um, so, so the argument here is to figure out, the state has to come in, they have to work with us on, once we get all the ERAP money out, we have to close the portal down and case by case, the rental assistance has to be provided in as much cases as possible. In many cases, it won't cover all the debt, but to keep as many people as possible from being uh, properly removed through the martial actions from their from their homes. Mm. Uh, okay, um, you <laughs> zooming way out here in the big picture of rent stabilization. Chip is challenging the constitutionality of the rent stabilization law. Uh, in court and how it's being implemented. Um, that is uh, certainly, uh, currently it's before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, your organization is expecting, I'm told, a decision maybe in August. Um, so you're you're challenging this whole, this whole system. Yeah, well, no one's happy with it, right? If you asked, if you, if you had a tenant advocate or a tenants sitting for the last hour, asking them, is affordability happening in New York? Is New York an affordable place to live by and large? 
most of them would probably agree that it isn't. And we would argue. But for that, the rent stabilized stock in well, many cases. It's significantly more affordable, yes, uh-huh. than, than free market. But is it more affordable than Houston or another major city with a rapidly growing population? And there, there's, there's infrastructural reasons why it's not. The, the onboarding of uh, the, the, the archaic um, old housing stock that many people live in in New York, but it's because they're onboarding more housing. And we believe, and we've done, re- we did significant research before we filed the lawsuit, that rent stabilization actually leads to the production of less housing. It reduces the incentive to produce more housing. Um, it produces affordable middle-income housing. It incentivizes people creating only luxury housing because they can only make the margins work because of the ridiculous regulatory environment and and operating costs that uh, uh, developers see in New York. They only go to to create free market, high-income earner housing. There's no incentive to create middle-income housing. So the only housing stock that we have for middle to lower income people is this 1 million units of preserved rent stabilized stock, which by the way is 100 years old. What we need to do is remove the barriers of rent regulation, allow for a a smoothing of the housing market. And again, this doesn't mean that people who can't afford the rents suddenly start paying more rent. This means that that the government and taxpayers collectively start bearing some of the burden of affordability of the state, we think, of the the city. We think that once lawmakers don't have the shield of rent stabilization anymore, they'll actually have to address property tax reform. They'll actually have to address homelessness. They will actually have to address providing direct rental subsidies to keep people in their homes. Right now, everyone says rent stabilization. We have rent stabilization. We have to protect it. That's what provides affordability in the city. It isn't. It isn't being provided because it's forcing higher costs on free market units. There is a reason San Francisco has some of the highest rents in this, in the country. There's a reason New York has some of the highest rents in the country. Um, and it's because they said, have- Yeah, but as you said earlier, that could also just be a call to build a lot more housing. And I mean, there's the I, I'm not quite sure how having the rent stabilized system disincentivizes the building of new housing where, uh, you know, zoning regulations and and other costs and costs um, seem to be much bigger barriers. Because if the rent's regulated, where's the incentive for a developer to build unless they're being directly subsidized by taxpayers like the 421A program, which, by the way, just died because people thought it was a giveaway to developers where the money has to work out. Right. Somebody has to be incentivized to build the development. Either they have to build middle income or low income housing and be able to make a profit or they have to be given money to do so. From from my perspective, I think there's huge portions of the city outside of, of some of the most expensive areas that would seem to be sort of ripe for middle income housing that could be, you know, solidly profitable. I'm not I'm not quite sure, you know, the the arguments that you hear from lots of housing advocates, I understand they're not representing the the owners and, and property managers of rent stabilized buildings, but is that, you know, the city needs to build a lot more housing everywhere. Uh, and that there's zoning regulations and lack of political will. And, and maybe some of it is about, you know, the the budget of the, you know, of, of HPD and, and others. But that, um, you know, to alleviate the affordable housing crisis, the number one goal is build build a lot more housing. Uh, correct. Mm-hmm. But 
that they're one and the same. The one problem leads to the other. Rent, highly regulated markets reduce the production of new housing. There are there are unregulated major cities in this in this country that are onboarding tens of thousands of units of housing at a rapid pace because they need to and they can and because there's profit in it. If we are a city that continues to make it only profitable to build ultra luxury apartments, which we currently are, because in part, not only, but in part of the rent regulation system, then we will not be producing enough housing we need to ever meet the goals of the Yimbies to produce enough housing to lower those overall costs. Hmm. Well, I will certainly let you continue to make your <laughs> argument to the court, just uh, poking at it a bit there, and we'll see what uh, yeah. we'll see what comes there. Um, what is the what is the next expected steps in that in that suit against the city? <laughs> We're supposed to have uh, a response from our oral arguments uh, from the Second Circuit uh, any day now, probably closer to the end of the summer. We are expecting to then uh, file for cert in front of the Supreme Court to have a conversation again. We're not suing, by the way, to uh, remove the city and state's ability to set up rent controls. We are saying that the current system doesn't work in and of itself. Um, and it's specifically things like the rent guidelines board, which uh, I'll go back to my prior comment. Tenants are not happy with the way the rent guidelines work. Property owners are not happy. There's too much human political will involved on both sides of the argument. Screaming matches about who is hurting more property owners and tenants does not serve the housing market and the, and the affordability and safety of housing in general. Um, this whole system uh, is set up to, uh, I would say, benefit politically a lot of elected officials in the city. And um, it doesn't really work to provide and produce good affordable housing. So we're arguing that the system that currently exists in New York, not that the city and state don't have the legal right to set guidelines hmm. or the regulation of the housing, but that the way the current system set up and that if you're going to do it, then the property owner who is providing that affordability has to be compensated fully. And that is where the discrepancy uh, exists within the rent guidelines board, because uh, it can change by the mayor. It can change by the rent guidelines board's uh, actual membership. That's the argument that it isn't based off of actual facts and numbers, but it's based off political will and, and intention. And included in there that it's not targeted. It's not income targeted. A hundred percent. We mm-hmm. we know from you know New York Times editorials and, and research that there's at least a hundred thousand plus. And of course, there's anecdotal stories of uh, one of the Koch brothers had a rent stabilized apartment. There there are definitely wealthy people who live and have rent stabilized. The question is, of course, whether or not is enough of the rent stabilized uh, stock to uh, argue whether or not means testing is in place. But there is a question of whether or not this is the best way to provide affordability, reducing the rents on a half of the housing stock available or providing direct subsidies to individuals who definitely need it to be able to afford in New York, as opposed to subsidizing in many cases or certain cases, people who are, are wealthy enough to, to pay a full free market rent. All right. Well, we will be uh, watching out for the next steps in that uh, court case. And we will, of course, also even sooner be seeing what the Rent Guidelines Board decides next week. We're speaking here on Tuesday, June 14th. So one week from today will be the vote of the Rent Guidelines Board to assess uh, rent increases on those stabilized 
1 million apartments uh, for the, the coming year, effective October 1st, or uh, one-year leases or two-year leases, and we'll be watching that. Jay Martin is Executive Director of CHIP, the Community Housing Improvement Program, and we thank you for the time. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it.